Interpreters of Thomas Aquinas have long argued about whether he holds that beauty is a transcendental, that's to say, a feature of reality coextensive with all that exists, like unity, goodness, and truthfulness. I will argue here that Aquinas can be read to affirm in an implicit but clear way that beauty is a transcendental. Then, in the second part of this essay, I'll consider what it might mean to speak of the transcendent divine beauty, given Aquinas' metaphysical commitments, particularly with regard to his doctrine of divine simplicity. And in the final part, I will treat the question of how the beauty of the creation both manifests and conceals divine beauty. And I'll talk about creation as the iconostasis of God, of divine beauty. So let me start with beauty as a transcendental feature of reality. Noteworthily, Aquinas does not list beauty as a transcendental term uh, in texts on transcendental notions. Perhaps then we should simply exclude it from our responsible account of his teaching on the subject of the transcendentals. However, at least two well-known texts should give us reason to pause before reaching such a conclusion. One is found in the commentary on Dionysius's Divine Names, chapter 4, Lexio 5. The other in his discussion of the beauty of the eternal Son and Word of God in speaking of the Holy Trinity in Summa Theologiae Prima Pars, question 39, article 8. I'll return to both these texts. In the first of these texts, St. Thomas is commenting on Dionysius, who is a principal influence for him on this subject matter. The extended text is analogically, analytically dense. Aquinas discusses ways in which one might say that God is beautiful and in what ways one might not say so, and I will return to that in the second part of the presentation. Here, however, it is pertinent to consider Aquinas' discussion of the presence of beauty in all that exists. All that has being is beautiful. He makes six points regarding this idea. First, all beauty comes from God insofar as God is the cause of all that exists. So there's some kind of coextensivity between creation, existence, and beauty. Second, he gives a definition of beauty, the first of two. Beauty can be defined ontologically as the splendor, or claritas, that results from form. Everything has a formal determination of some kind, insofar as it has existence or essay, just as each of us here have a human form. Therefore, insofar as anything exists and has some formal ontological uh, content, it has a degree of beauty. Third, the splendor of the form in created things is a participation in the divine splendor from which it originates. The divine nature is the transcendent exemplar of beauty in diverse finite created realities. Fourth, and then perhaps most importantly, he says in Latin, ex divina pulcritudine esse omnium derivator. Literally, the existence of everything originates from divine beauty. It's a wonderful sort of Thomistic pithy, beautiful comment. The existence of everything originates from divine beauty. Fifth, he gives a second definition of beauty in the text. Beauty can be defined ontologically as a property of being that emerges from proportion or harmony, consonantia. So he had talked about splendor, and now he talks about harmony. For example, in authentic relationships of personal friendship, when you have two people who are good friends, they imply a spiritual harmony or concord. And we could say, well, that's a beautiful friendship, or that's a noble friendship because of that element of spiritual harmony. Sixth, then, the concord are beautiful harmonies we find in the created order among different created things. You might call it like a cosmic friendship. 
are expressive of the wisdom of God who is the author of creation. There's a visible harmony or consonantia present in all things. Evidently, if the existence of everything derives from divine beauty, and if everything has its existence in some way, is in, everything that has existence is in some way beautiful by virtue of its intrinsic form, then it would seem to follow logically that beauty for Aquinas is a characteristic of being that is coextensive with all that exists. I don't find a way myself to avoid the conclusion that beauty is a transcendental when meditating on this long and dense text, particularly in the Divine Names commentary. However, we see a similar idea expressed, albeit more in a more cursory fashion, in the aforementioned passage of the Summa Theologiae. This is question 7, 39, article 8, 39, 8 in the Prima Pars. Here, however, Aquinas gives a more synthetic definition of beauty in things that combines both the definitions found in our previous discussion, claritas and proportio, or consonantia, but he adds a third note of beauty, which is integritas, ontological integrity or wholeness. Now, in this passage, he's thinking about beauty as an attribute of the eternal word or the sun. And he says the following, species or beauty has a likeness to the property of the sun, for beauty includes three conditions, integrity or perfection, since those things which are impaired are by the very fact ugly, due proportion or harmony, and lastly, brightness or clarity, whence things are called beautiful, which have a bright color. So he just says integrity, harmony or proportion, and splendor is the traditional definition taken from this text. The implication of this point of view is readily apparent. God is essentially beautiful, and God has created all that exists in light of the eternal word and wisdom of God, who is the Son. Consequently, all that exists and derives from God is in some way beautiful. The beauty in things themselves has a threefold foundation. Most fundamentally, there is the integrity or wholeness of a thing. So consider, for example, a given tree, a magnificent oak tree that's beautiful because it's integral, having all its limbs, leaves, and flowers, having reached its perfect maturity and magnificence, and being protected from having its limbs cut off to make room for power lines, which would make the tree less beautiful because it would lose its integrity. Secondly, in that tree, there's proportionality. The tree is beautiful because of the proportions that emerge from the form, and we should think of these both quantitatively and qualitatively. The branches are in a proportionate quantitative arrangement to one another that is beautiful as they all ascend towards sunlight in different ways, but in a harmonious, proportionate, and integrated fashion. But there's also the arrangement of the qualities, of the colors, of the gray trunk, of the green leaves, of the white flowers that are harmonious in qualitative ways, but also in quantitative ways because the qualities are arranged in quantitative proportions in regard to one another. So the most ultimate note of beauty then is splendor. When the form of the tree is integral, not being in, inhibited by um, being um, you know, in some way cut or, or maligned, and it's perfect and expresses itself through the right proportion of harmonious perfections of quantity and quality, what emerges is the innate splendor or clarity of the form. A tree that is beautiful has a splendid magnificence that derives from its ontological perfection, integrity, and harmonious proportions. If this is the case, we must ask about the relationship between truth, goodness, and beauty. Is beauty a note of being that's more on the side of truth or more on the side of goodness or of some kind of emergence from the two? 
Beauty is the splendor of the species or form, and its attraction is that of the truth or formal determination of a reality, insofar as that reality has the power to garner our admiration. You might say we contemplate the form of a thing insofar as it's splendid and beautiful. In other words, when beauty does attract, whether intellectually or sensibly, because you can have you can say something's intellectually beautiful, like a geometry argument that takes some time to understand, but you see is actually logically beautiful, or sensibly beautiful, like the tree aforementioned. In each case, the thing is beautiful by virtue of its form, which is capable of eliciting the appetite of admiration and delight. So we might say that beauty is the goodness of the truth of the thing. The beauty of the truth of the thing. Sorry, beauty is the goodness of the truth of the thing because it's the delightfulness or appetability of its intelligibility. I'd sense the inner intelligibility of the geometry argument or of the form of the tree, and I delight in and delect in that, and then it, it, it brings about admiration uh, for the goodness of that reality in its form, formality. Now, to state things in this fashion is to place emphasis on the formal determination as the key element rather than the splendor. That decision gives primacy to the truth of the beautiful reality and its integrity, and only secondly emphasizes the goodness of the reality and its splendor. However, we could also say, to privilege beauty, goodness, that beauty is the species or intelligible determination of goodness. It's like the form of goodness. This way of speaking places emphasis on the goodness of beauty, but denotes that it implies formal determination and thus a truth of a definite kind. Why is that tree such a good tree to look at? Because of the delightfulness of its formal element of beauty. And this is why beauty invites admiration while goodness, strictly speaking, perfects. Goodness is really more grounded for Aquinas in final causality, while beauty is grounded in formal causality. Beauty has the power to hold our gaze, to seduce in elevated or ignoble ways. Goodness has the power to give our lives ultimate purpose or meaning. And the two are not to be confused, even if they are often found together. So pivoting from, beauty to, from goodness to beauty is a delicate procedure. It's helped to understand Aquinas' conception if you focus on the radiance of the form or the sort of nobility of the truth of a thing and its integrity and intelligibility as attracting admiration. Let me turn now to the beauty of God. Clearly Aquinas affirms that God is beautiful, but what can it mean to say this? St. Thomas typically avoids offering any definition of God in his writings and instead makes thematic appeal to the threefold VA taken from Dionysius the Areopagite in his On the Divine Names, chapter 7, Section 3. Now, according to this way of thinking, creatures do resemble God as the effects of the Creator resemble their cause by similitude. Therefore, they, the creatures, allow us to signify positively what God is essentially by analogy, according to Aquinas' interpretation of Dionysius. However, this project of signifying must also be qualified by a series of carefully well-thought-out negations, since God is also in many respects unlike or dissimilar to his created effects. Now, Aquinas makes clear in his commentary on the divine names that one can speak of the uncreated beauty of God. In fact, it's precisely his intention to prosecute that affirmation and to say that, indeed, God is beautiful. However, when considering this procedure in accord with the threefold VA mentioned above, one must take account first and foremost of Aquinas' doctrine of divine simplicity, which indeed he alludes to overtly in the commentary on the divine names. 
In Summa Theologiae 1, question 3, Aquinas considers divine simplicity in several respects, four of which are particularly consequential for our considerations. First, St. Thomas affirms that God does not have a body, unlike the oak tree. Second, there's no distinction of individuality and natural form in God. We here are all individuals who share the same natural form because we are all human beings, but there are no other gods than God who is individually unique. Third, there is in God no distinction of essence and existence. God's being is not in a genus. He's not one kind of being among others who all participate in being. Rather, he is the one alone who gives existence to all that is and is therefore utterly transcendent of all who receive their being from him. And he is only intelligible for us, therefore, as the origin and author of all that falls within the transcendental range of being, and not as that which is ontologically common to all created being. God is not a member of common being or a member of the the transcendental set of all created realities. And lastly, there exists in God no distinction of substance and properties or accidents. It's not just the case that God has wisdom, but God is in some ways subsistent wisdom. How do these four considerations of divine simplicity affect our understanding of divine beauty if God is simple and beautiful? God is the cause of perfections in creatures so that perfection names like goodness, wisdom, and beauty may rightly be attributed to God. All that exists is beautiful, and beauty is in some way an expression of the splendor of a form or nature. Consequently, the divine nature or essence may be said to be beautiful as the transcendent hidden cause of the beauty present in all things. However, in the negative motion, we must remove from perfection terms attributed to God any notion of ontological imperfection by way of negation, so as to posit them of God in a supereminent way, supra-beautiful, you might say. Furthermore, beauty was defined in creatures by recourse to three notions, integrity of form, proportionality or harmony, and splendor. However, in light of the metaphysics of divine simplicity, we clearly cannot attribute the modalities of beauty we find in creatures directly to God. That would be supremely anthropomorphic, if not to say physicalist. What might, what might we say then about the beauty of God when employing Aquinas' Dionysius framework for divine naming? First, God is not a body or a hylomorphic subject composed of matter and form, but beauty as we experience it in physical realities always emerges in a material form with its own integrity, qualitative and and quantitative and and sensibly qualitative proportions, as well as physical splendor. By contrast, if God is beauty, his beauty is quite literally hidden from view. There is no icon of the divine beauty. There is no way to manifest him in a direct way in his divine essence. No sensate representation of the ineffable divine essence exists. And I leave aside the question of how the incarnation in the human nature of Jesus manifests the divine beauty. Nor can the formal beauty of God be conceived after the pattern of a nature or essence abstracted by us from a material subject, like the beauty of a human being or the beauty of a star or the beauty of an orange tree. These things are individuals that are parts of larger sets. Many orange trees in Florida, many stars in the Florida sky, many human beings in the room in Florida. But the immaterial beauty of God transcends all these abstract conceptual notions drawn from individuals of a similar, of a same kind, because God is not sensate, and we don't have an abstract concept of him derived from many individual examples. 
And so, since God is not an individual or common kind, nor is he a member of a larger genus, therefore, the beauty of God is not that of any particular kind of reality, as if he would be one beautiful reality among others. Rather, he is that uniquely transcendent beauty that is the cause of all else that exists as beautiful, the uncreated beauty giving being to the world, as Aquinas noted. Third, then, in terms of our process of negative naming, God does not receive his existence from others and is not a member of the transcendental set of all created beings, ens commune. He doesn't have a composite nature of essence and existence. Therefore, the beauty of God is not part of the range of beauty found in created existence. Rather, this beauty is known only by analogy as the unique total cause of all created existence, as the beauty that gives being to all else that is beautiful. Nor can God be alienated from this attribute because God is not contingently beautiful the way everything else is in that it has a given beauty. God has an uncreated, inalienable beauty that is simply coextensive with what God is. Rather, this property then must be attributed to him eternally and in ontological distinction and independence from the whole created order. And so finally, there's no composition in God of substance and properties. And so one must also say that God is his own beauty, that in God, beauty is identical in some way with being, goodness, wisdom, and power. These divine names are appropriately drawn from distinct features of our created reality to denote by analogy something that is mysteriously one in God himself. Obviously, they're not chambers in the divine nature wherein you move through metaphysical doors from divine goodness to divine beauty, some kinds of formal distinctions. There's just one mystery we denote analogically by many terms. If we return to the threefold definition, we, consider, we can consider the apophatic character of God's supereminent beauty. There is the integrity in God, uh, of the integritas of divine beauty, because the divine essence is one and integral. Surely we may say by analogy that God's divine essence is splendid and eternally beautiful. So you get the first note and the third note, integrity and splendor. But can we attribute a beauty of proportionality or harmony to the divine essence? In a human being, spiritual properties may emerge progressively that are beautiful but also complex due to their proportionate arrangement. The argument of Steve Long in that article I read that as it emerged was beautiful because of its logical symmetry, its soundness, its validity, he convinced me eventually. So a discursive philosophical argument may be beautiful due to its integrity as expressed through a proportionate chain of reasoning attaining to a kind of intellectual splendor. But in God, divine knowledge is of a higher order that is non-compositional. He doesn't think discursively, so he's unlike other people. In a, human, in a human being, a spiritual moral virtue like charity may emerge over time and appear beautiful, something beautiful for God that Teresa of Calcutta decided to enact over time or discovered as her vocation. But God is eternally charitable, and his properties are identical with the divine essence as such. There's not a history of becoming of the divine beauty. We may conclude, then, that there's no compositional proportionality or of quantity or quality in God, and therefore no strict analogy of beauty between creatures and God in this particular sense. However, the beautiful proportions of complex created things that God has made both within themselves, the individual human being or tree that is beautiful, and also among themselves as diverse realities related to one another, 
are beautiful by virtue of the existence and formal determinations that God has given them. Therefore, they, in their complexity and proportionate arrangement, are expressive in their created complexity of what must exist in God in a wholly other, higher, and utterly simple way. The wisdom of God is eternally beautiful as he expresses this wisdom within the complex, the complexity of creation, which unfolds through time and order, by giving, uh, which God gives radiantly intelligible forms to in so many diverse and complementary beings, so as to express what is simple and infinite in God in a, multiplic- in, a, in, a mul- in a form of multiplicity and in an, a kind of a, a proportionate order outside of God, you might say. The goodness of God is eternally beautiful, and he expresses this goodness within the creation by giving spiritually and sensibly attractive forms to so many diverse and complementary beings. The wisdom and goodness of God's beauty are expressed outwardly by the giving of existence to the created world in its innately attractive intelligibility and in the splendor of its diverse and manifold created forms. So now I turn to the last and shortest part of the presentation to think about the created order as concealment of divine beauty and as manifestation of divine beauty. How does this monotheistic vision of creation relate to the question of created beauty? From what we have argued, it follows that the created world is a kind of iconostasis of God. On the one hand, it serves to manifest, however imperfectly, the hidden beauty of God. The creation is not God, but God is omnipresent within all things, as Augustine says, and Aquinas follows him, more interior to them than they are to themselves, as the inward cause of their being. And so in a certain way, I misspeak when I say the creation is outside of God. Creation is distinct from God, but it is the manifestation or emanation of divine beauty in what is not God. And it is God who's present most intimately to all that he exists, that all that exists even while he's not identical with anything that exists as his creature. Consequently, their created beauty is an expression of God's eternal wisdom. But on the other hand, the world of finite beings is so utterly unlike God and so wholly disproportionate to God ontologically that it cannot communicate any immediate apperception or conceptual knowledge of what God is in himself. Emphasis on immediate. Therefore, the same beauty is present in all that exists Sorry, therefore, the same beauty that is present in all that exists also conceals God. He remains hidden from sight as the unknown ground of creation. The world that God has created is beautiful in diverse ways. Based on Aquinas' threefold definition of beauty, we can note that each thing that exists is beautiful by reason of its inherent form, its integral wholeness, its manifold proportionate properties, and its expressive splendor. As already noted, such formal beauty in things reflects in however faint a way the transcendent beauty of God and relates each individual reality, however seemingly insignificant, directly to God as the primary author of its beauty. When a a modern scientist who's a theist studies some small object in detail and thinks that there's some kind of connectedness between the beauty of its inherent form and God, Aquinas is saying that that's absolutely metaphysically realistic. However, there's also an integrity of order between diverse individual forms of created reality. The way everything hangs together and interrelates and intercooperates, even perhaps it develops through a certain kind of measured conflict in the created order. 
and there corresponds to this a proportionality and splendor that emerges from the order existing between things. The collective order gives rise to a cosmic natural beauty that emerges on a larger scale. Aquinas accepts the basic understanding of created reality as hierarchically differentiated. This is one he finds in classical Neoplatonic authors, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, both of which influence him. What is that hierarchy of being? There are realities that have being and are physical in kind, but that are not alive, non-living physical things. There are realities that are physical and living, but that do not have knowledge. Plants, for example. There are realities that are living and have sensate knowledge, but have no rational knowledge or deliberative freedom, the animals. And there are beings that are alive and are characterized not only by sensate knowledge, but also by intellectual understanding and the capacity to love by means of deliberate freedom, the human person. Each of these kinds of realities reflects something unique about the beauty of God. You could consider them individually, like I did with the tree or with a human being who seeks the truth. At the same time, each of these kinds of reality also contributes to the good of the others in a hierarchically differentiated way. Aquinas thinks it's possible for living things to emerge ontologically from non-living things over time. He is open to this idea. But he also argues that even if such emergence takes place, the specific form of living things is different in kind from that of non-living realities. Non-living things exist principally, according to Aquinas, to create a context or setting in which living things can emerge. And plants exist for the sake of animals, and plants and animals exist for the sake of human beings. He develops this argument in the early part of the Summa Contra Gentiles, book three. Human beings exist for the sake of life in community with one another, and ultimately for life with God. The visible cosmos exists then so that human beings may live in pursuit of union with God by grace, in friendship and society with one another, and in harmony with the wider created order. The interdependent hierarchy that emerges from differentiated kinds of beings gives rise to a larger overarching cosmic order, one that implies all three notes of beauty we have mentioned. This cosmic and ontological order has its own relative integrity, the internal integrity of the cosmos as a cosmos of men living amidst other living things in a physical universe able to be oriented toward God. It has a proportionality or harmony between these distinct kinds of beings, and it has an internal splendor that is present in the ontological mystery of the universe, the splendor of the mystery of the cosmos in its beauty and radiant order. Distinct kinds of beings are characterized by distinct operations, and so they pursue distinct ends, sometimes in limited conflict one, with one another, in, in terms of living things in particular. Nevertheless, the distinct kinds of beings we find in the universe can be seen as profoundly complementary, set within a larger cosmic framework. This physical world capable of supporting the existence of living things this, this physical world is capable of supporting the existence of living things and is capable of becoming a theater for human rationality and freedom where specifically human communities can flourish and turn their lives towards God. This overarching ontological order is beautiful in its own way, even if it is strange and vast. And the detection of its deeper purpose can seem elusive or enigmatic to the human mind. So to conclude... 
A theocentric understanding of beauty interprets the created world in light of God who is uncreated beauty and has created the world in a certain way as a magnification or manifestation of divine goodness and glory, wisdom and truth. An anthropocentric account of the centrality of the human community within the larger cosmos sees the beauty of the world as being of utility to the flourishing of the human community. These two visions, the theocentric and the anthropocentric, are not opposed to one another if understood rightly, nor are either of them opposed to a metaphysical and ethical vision of beauty in non-human creatures, one that acknowledges their intrinsic ontological worth apart from human beings as creatures of God. The hierarchy of being is inclusive, meaning that to emphasize the dignity of the human person should not be seen as requiring the denigration of the lesser realities. On the contrary, the two are coordinated. Human beings should acknowledge the order of nature that pre-exists them precisely so as to live in the midst of nature with wisdom and aesthetic moderation and to understand themselves as bodies and animals in a way that is integrated and reasonable. In one respect, God has created the vast, beautiful cosmos and the strange and wondrous development of living creatures in view of the emergence of human beings in whom the created world becomes spiritually self-aware and capable of personal love and communion. Acknowledging this means accepting and respecting the structures of nature that precede the human community and that sustain it in being. In another respect, God has created all things in view of himself, his own eternal goodness, One can learn to receive the beauty of the created order from God and to offer that order back to God through the religious religious acknowledgement of God in our physical existence in this world. Human beings can learn to acknowledge then not only the beauty and dignity of the creation that pre-exists them, but their own hierarchical status within creation, but ultimately by turning especially to the creator as the uncreated beauty from whence all things come forth and to which they all inevitably return. Aquinas' metaphysics provides key insights for thinking about the beauty of existence in an integral and balanced way, and all of this serves merely as a prelude to thinking on another register about divine revelation in which God manifests his uncreated beauty in human form in the beauty of the life of Christ, which begins to transfigure the cosmos in ways that Father Legg spoke to us about so eloquently earlier. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Father. We have some time for questions. Uh, Dr. Volsheng in the front here. There should be a microphone from your end. Thank you very much for the talk. This is my delight to listen to a lecture that embodies what he talks about. This beautifully crafted. You raise the problem of proportion or harmony in God, which seems to conflict with harmony or proportion seems to conflict with simplicity. In the very article you mentioned, where beauty is appropriated to the sun, it is the concordance of the sun with the father that seems to take that place. Mm-hmm. There's another aspect 
comes out in the commentary on John, where in commenting on John 17, that there may be one as we are one. St. Thomas raises the question whether they are one by essence, so will we be one by essence? Clearly not. Uh, he says there are two modes of unity in God. One is the unity of essence, the Father and I are unum, hen, in the loser. And the consonantia amoris, which is that of the Holy Spirit. Um, consonantia Okay, that's wonderful. I, I, I concede immediately that there is, uh, for Aquinas, some uh, likeness between the concord or harmony or proportionality of the persons of the Trinity in their mutual communion and the manifestation of multiplicity in creation. I don't think that that is um, contrary to the fundamental argument of this paper because I'm really trying to look here at, you might say, the De Deo Uno features of, you could call it natural theology or the metaphysical register of thinking about the divine essence. So to segue, you're, you're anticipating what should be another movement in the argument, which is to think about how do we understand the uh, uncreated communion of the persons of the Trinity in light of, on the one hand, the doctrine of the homoousius and therefore the simplicity of the divine nature, so that there's no beauty in the Son that's not first in the Father, there's no beauty in the Father and the Son that's not also in the Spirit by virtue of the shared uh, identical divine essence that is communicated fully through generation inspiration. And on the other hand, say that there is, because of the uh, processions and the relations that emerge from the processions, uh, a true distinctiveness of persons that uh, in the concord of the friendship of the Father and the Son through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they share as their mutual love has a kind of um, distinctively revealed uh, analogy to the harmony of creatures. And I think you could say, of course, first and foremost, ecclesially in the communion of persons in the church through grace. But also, I mean, deconic, as you, I'm sure, know, in Cosmos suggests there's a kind of Trinitarian imprint in the multiplicity of creatures in the cosmos emerging towards divinization in Trinitarian life. Now I'm, you know, strictly Thomist in thinking you can't derive knowledge of that intercommunion of Trinitarian persons from merely from natural theology or philosophical argument. But once it's revealed, it casts a deeper and higher, a higher and deeper light on the created order. So I, I, I think that's a very important point. Dr. Long, does this thing, does this thing work? Yeah, it's working. It's working. Uh, Father, this is fascinating. Thank you for your remarks. I wondered if you, what you think of Ertzen about this. If you, uh, Ertzen seems to argue that beauty is a kind of maximum, and so unlike being uh, or good, which we can talk about as, um, you know, someone can can barely be uh, extant like myself on some days, and we can say I still have being or, uh, and, and can have limited good and still have good, but if there's a way in which, uh, if you think of beauty as this sort of maximal splendor of the form, he, he seems to want to treat it under the aspect of uh, good, 
but very much in the language you were using, it was striking me. Was You're saying Ertzen, Jan Ertzen? Yeah, Jan Ertzen. Yeah. Your language that uses very much your language of... Um, yeah. Uh, well, I wrote it. That no, no. Listen, I mean, that's very. You're very perceptive. Uh, I don't. You don't see the footnotes as I'm reading, but the footnotes are all footnotes to Ertzen on beauty, and so it's exactly as you say. I'm, I'm, I'm cribbing off of his developments, although I didn't acknowledge them to you. They're acknowledged in the paper, and um, I'm trying to think about some of the elements of Jan Ertzen's. So it's interesting in the book on the transcendentals on Aquinas. He's more, a little more robust in saying beauty is a transcendental feature of being. And then in the later book, when he writes about, and the transcendentals in the Middle Ages, when he writes about um, beauty as discussed by the medievals in general, he notes, he says it's the underdeveloped notion. that They basically didn't get to it in the way that it deserved. There's not a plenary, a plenary uh, dis- engagement of the discussion as, there, as much as there could be. And, and he's more reticent there to um, fully endorse the earlier theory, although I think he, he probably is laying the groundwork for suggesting that beauty can be considered a transcendental notion. And then you have this interesting intratomist dispute about whether beauty is more a note of register of goodness or more a note of register of truth. Now, in the order of the transcendentals in the De Veritate, you have being, oneness, truth, goodness. So where would it go? And I think it's absolutely clear that it would go last. So I'm agreeing with Dr. Long here and Jan Ertsen and saying it's a kind of ultimate plenitude of being that you get the, the goodness of things is, is splendid and manifests in truth, in, in beauty. The problem I'm worried about in saying that, so I concede that, the what I'm worried about is confusing beauty with moral goodness or the, the differentiating what is uh, the contemplation of the beauty of a thing from uh, the knowledge of the goodness of a thing. Because often in the created order, things are very, people are very good and not necessarily beautiful, or very beautiful and not very good. And, and they clearly don't have to align. So how do you think about that? And I, I do believe beauty is a certain kind of register of goodness that develops from form or species. In that sense, it's more rooted in, in integrity of an intelligible form uh, or a perceptible form. Thank you. We have time for one last question. Thank you, Father. Um, so I understand the sort of cosmic order of beauty um, and very intelligible as far as the form. I guess I'm just interested in sort of how that intersects with the sort of anthropological side. With what? The anthropological side of people experience yeah. you know, beauty. So how does it you know, intersect with individuality? Because um, you know, if it's there to promote human community and human flourishing, sometimes people differ very much on what they perceive as beautiful. And if you, yeah. it seems like it would be difficult to pin that as just, well, you don't understand the form, you don't see it well enough. And now you're sort of attributing ignorance to someone who might not like something. Case in point, um, one of the most beautiful things about Gothic cathedrals is their flying buttresses. But Gaudi absolutely hated them. Yeah, um, so the two arguments that I always get when I, when I give some paper like this, the two, the two objections are always, what about ugliness? Um, which that's an easier one, I think, to, to talk about, which is the, it's, it's a privation of beauty. 
And so there's gradations of beauty in the world. There can be gradations of ugliness too because it's a derivation away from formal integrity or proportion or splendor. It's harder to talk about than beauty because what's more perfect is more intelligible than what's less perfect, but we can understand it as a privation. The other question I always get is about um, subjectivity and beauty. I don't really have an answer to that. I mean, I think, I, I guess I think that if we did it uh, enough, if we knew enough about the human, it, we can, when we see what appears as just very strong, different, and opposed tastes on the aesthetic level about artifactual beauty, we could probably give a characterization of human nature that shows its plasticity with regards to aesthetic form in such a way as to account for those differentiated tastes. But I wouldn't want to do that. So I could say, you know, some things strike some people as more beautiful and other things more, uh, other people as beautiful. But I wouldn't want to give up on the idea that we can get actually objective standards so that, um, if you know my college students I teach or talk to say that the St. Louis Jesuit hymn book is as good as the Gregorian chant or better, I don't want to concede that that's just different tastes. You know, I do want to say there's a kind of a aesthetic education that needs to transpire to achieve a, a more difficult apperception of objective beauty. Um, but I, I, I find that like a, a, a bemusing challenge. I don't think it's the case though as much with natural beauty or the beauty of the family. Uh, you know, if you talk about the beauty of a tree or the beauty of a family or the beauty of a Grand Canyon, I think there's a kind of almost a kind of a aesthetic natural law that manifests itself. And people are, it's easier for people to see goodness and beauty as aligned. Uh, I think it's also true with regards to true arguments and beautiful arguments uh, or um, moral life, like the beauty of Mother Teresa. I think it's more objective that it's beautiful. Uh, so I think artifactual beauty and uh, tastes pose the most difficult case. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.